As you're uh, taking a seat, go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you brought your Bibles with you, if you want to follow along in a uh, text and you didn't bring your Bibles with you, there's some Bibles in the pew in front of you. Um, and turn to Luke 4. Turn to Luke 4. I want to get back into um, studying Luke together. We were studying that uh, a while ago. And uh, so I just want to get back into it here. But as I get into this text, there's a thought that I often have, have often had, um, and that thought sometimes comes from this text and it comes from other texts and uh, teachings of Jesus. But the thought is really simple, um, and yet it's also uh, kind of troubling for me who's a pastor. And the thought is this, is how would I react if Jesus were preaching in front of me? Like if Jesus were actually the one in the pulpit giving the message, how would I react to him? Would I react positively or negatively to Jesus? As, square, as scary as a question for me sometimes is this question, and trying to answer this question, is like, how would the congregation that I pastor respond to Jesus if I were to give him my pulpit? I wonder that. I really do at times, and sometimes I'm a little frightened by it because I'm just not real sure. I'm not real sure sometimes how I would react if Jesus was really clear on a message maybe that I didn't like or how you would react even sometimes if Jesus was real clear on a message that you didn't like or maybe even made you uncomfortable. Here in this text in chapter 4, we see Jesus showing up to his hometown. People that knew him saw him grow up uh, from a young child all the way up um, to an adult. Jesus gives a message. He actually preaches out of the Old Testament in two different ways, two different dif different ways, and he is rejected by the people that he came for. He, re he is rejected by the people that knew him best. It's a crazy story when you think about it in that way. So if you have your Bibles, this is the story that we're going to look at this morning. I'm just going to kind of teach it and kind of let it fall where it will. Here. Luke chapter 4. Beginning in verse 16, we'll end up going all the way through verse 30. And he came to Nazareth. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And so right now, it's been a while since we've been in Luke, but we are four chapters in and we see Jesus showing up at the temple. And just like, this isn't, the, the Gospels, by the way, aren't like an autobiography of Jesus and everything Jesus did. And we have, we just have, you know, uh, we have four Gospels and not a, t a ton of chapters, even in all of those, if you think about it. You can sit down and read a Gospel in a couple hours, maybe even faster than that. And so it's not like we have everything about Jesus that's expansive and his life, and yet in just four chapters of Luke here, we see him having now visited either the temple or the synagogue three different times, and we're told it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue. We can uh, assume that it's Jesus' custom to go to the temple during times of religious celebration. And just the reason I tell you this and show you this is often we think that Jesus is some type of kind of religious rebel, that he separates himself from the group that he's not interested in going to public worship services or having conversations or celebrating God corporately. That is not the case at all. We see Jesus constantly going back into the synagogues and going to the temple. And he's having these services that are even organized, that they're corporate. He is going to be 
with other people. And not only that, after Jesus dies and he's resurrected, his followers do that. Uh, a lot of us forget that after the resurrection, Jesus' followers, they start to flood the synagogues. They want to have worship services about Jesus in the synagogues. They're trying to convince people in the synagogues, like corporately, groups of people that are gathering to worship God. They are trying to convince them that in that place that Jesus is the God that they are to worship and he came for them, that he is Yahweh there. And so they flood the synagogues until basically they're pushed out of the synagogues and then they start meeting in homes. Uh, from there, they basically spread all throughout the different empires of the age there. And then at that point, after they kind of are meeting at homes and gathering together at homes, that's when actual church buildings begin to be built and people start to come to a centralized Place. And so the people of God never stopped meeting together, never stopped gathering together, never stopped worshiping together. And Jesus entered in on these times, types of gathering. So he's in a synagogue at this point, of, point in time, as it was his custom, as it was his habit. It's something that he did each and every week. He's there, and in a synagogue you would have kind of a number of things happen. If you're familiar with the Shema, they would say the Shema, they would uh, have prayers, they would read from the Old Testament law, they would read... From the Old Testament prophets. They would then get instruction on either the law or the prophets, sometimes both, and um, they would have a benediction, and that was kind of how their services went. You can kind of see this, and even there are some local Messianic Jewish uh, congregations. I have some friends that attend some, and you can kind of see what potentially uh, some of their services would have been like there. Well, after the readings during this period of time, from what we can tell, what would take place is the instruction. During the instruction, uh, they didn't always have somebody assigned to give instruction. But they had about 10 guys, typically from what I understand, that were ready to give instruction at any point in time kind of during the service after the readings. And so I kind of wonder even as, as we think about our own elders, when Paul talks about you need to be ready to kind of to teach... This is probably where he gets it from, is the Jewish tradition that you had leaders within even the synagogue that were ready to teach at any given time. And so Jesus here is going to stand up, and he is going to give a teaching here. He is going to give the instruction part of the service. And this is what he is going to stand up and preach to his hometown, to people who know him best. And so follow along, verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So we can assume that he asked for this, by the way. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And they began, began to say to them, he began to say, Jesus began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So I, I want us to look at the content here of what Jesus was saying to them. One of the things that I want us to notice is that Jesus is preaching the gospel. Jesus shows up and he says, I've come to preach the good news the gospel. I remember in Birmingham at the church I was at down there in youth ministry, I remember we were taking youth to uh, this church, and it happened to be a Pentecostal church, and before we were leaving, one of the moms say, oh, I, I see that you're taking the, the youth to a full gospel church. And I kind of looked at her, and I said, 
what do you mean, a full gospel church? And I'm thinking, like, like we preach the gospel in our church. I think it's full gospel. What do you mean by full gospel? Well, if you grew up Pentecostal, I guess you would understand what she meant by this. She meant that a church that spoke in tongues or taught about the teaching of tongues and saw that as a manifestation of the Spirit of God actually being poured out. And if people can speak in tongues and if you have the gift, that means that the Spirit of God has been poured out on you. And I was like, oh, so that's what you consider the full gospel. Um, we teach, by the way, the gospel in this church. I think we teach the full gospel, which is the pouring out of the Spirit. It's not always manifested in tongues, though. Here, I, I want to show you, though, what I think Jesus considers the full gospel as we look at the content of this. It certainly involves the Spirit of God that is given to his believers, but it's so much more than that. It has ethical meaning to it and spiritual meanings that go together. But So I just want to show you here. He pulls from two different places in Isaiah to preach the gospel. So Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is a book, if you read it, it's a long book. It's a, it's a prophet. Isaiah is a prophet. And what the prophet Isaiah is trying to do is remind the people of God of their mission to be a blessing to the whole world, but is also showing them the tragedy of their unfaithfulness. So when God's people were called out in chapter 12 of Genesis to be a blessing through Abraham, he meant it. Like, you're going to go be a blessing to the entire world. And so God sets them apart for that reason. But Isaiah is basically showing them that you have failed on that because of your unfaithfulness. Isaiah 58 is quoted in verse uh, um, 18 here. It's at the end. It says, the liberty to those who are oppressed. Jesus is actually pulling from Isaiah 58 there. He pulls from Isaiah 61 as well. But I want to show you these texts that Jesus pulls from here to preach the gospel. Isaiah 58 is a prophetic word against God's people who are having worship services, they're praying, and they're fasting, and they're hoping God's going to do a very specific thing. They're hoping that God is going to deliver them from the Babylonians. They're oppressed. The Babylonians have come, and they've taken over their land. They've separated some people, groups, families, and so forth. And so they've called basically this kind of national prayer service, and they're praying, and they're fasting. And this is what God says to Isaiah through them. They're going to ask God a question here, and then God is going to respond in a really particular um, but convicting way to them. So here they are, they're crying out to God in Isaiah 58, and they're asking him, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And otherwise, God, we're doing all of these things. We're having services. We're on our knees. We're at the altars. We're praying. We're crying out for you. We're denying ourselves in your name, and you don't hear us. And he says, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. This is God speaking back to them through Isaiah and oppress all your workers. So God is essentially telling them that I see your prayers. I see your fasting, but it's not about what I want. And so then he goes on and tells them what he believes their prayers and fasting should actually be about and who they should be for. Continuing in Isaiah 58, verse 6, he says, Is this not the fast I choose, that you loose the bonds of wickedness, that you throw off sin, that you get rid of 
you get rid of wickedness, that you get rid of evil in your midst, that you undo the straps of the yoke to let the oppressed go free, and you break every yoke. Is it not that you share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless into your house? When you see the naked, cover him, and do not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then, you sh- then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall speed up, spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And so Isaiah looks at their worship. He looks at everything they're doing and consisting of denying themselves in a very severe and very real way. Their, pa- their fasting, their praises, their worship services, everything that they have going on. And they're crying out to God. And God essentially looks at them and says, hey, I, I see your ritual. Like, I see you going through the motions. I see you showing up and doing all of this, these things and these rituals. But you have neglected your responsibility to the people I gave you to be responsible for. Including the poor, the oppressed, the homeless the broke, your brothers and sisters, those who you see without anything. Now, Isaiah 61 is very similar to Isaiah 58, but it's also different. It's different in this one sense here. It's different that Isaiah 61, which is the bulk of Jesus' message here, is that there is going to be a spirit-filled messenger that is going to create the type of people who will pray and fast the way that God wants them to. That he's going to create a people who are going to worship and pray and seek the things that God wants. That there's going to be this special person that is going to establish a new people. It's similar and that this messenger is going to establish this new people who care about the poor, who care about the captive, who care about the blind. And it's going to end in this idea of the year of the Lord's favor. And so let's look at all of this. This new messenger that is going to be uh, um, led by the Spirit of God is telling them that his people are going to be for the poor, the captive, the blind. And I want us to be careful here because this is what we often do not to spiritualize this too quickly. That when Jesus says that he is coming to preach good news to the poor, to the blind, to the captive, and the oppressed, he is actually talking about the poor, the blind, the captive, and the oppressed. The materially poor, the physically captive, the actual blind, and the oppressed. One commentator points out that the poor, the blind, and the oppressed in this text do not exclude the poor and the blind. The literal meaning in a lot of this in Isaiah 61 and 58 was that God cares about the poor. That God cares about the blind. And that's clearly is who Jesus is talking about as well. Jesus is good news for the poor. He is good news for the oppressed. He loves and cares for them. For Jesus still to be physically and materially good news for the poor, the blind, the captive, and oppressed, we have to be good news for the poor, the blind, the captive, and the oppressed. The church has to be good news for them because we are the hands and the feet of Christ. 
Now, the idea of the poor, the blind, and the oppressed do have spiritual implications, spiritual overtones. People are more than physical. We are spiritual people. And light and darkness is talked about in a whole bunch of different ways in the Bible, including ways in which light overcomes the darkness, ways that Jesus is the light in the midst of the darkness. And the Bible is clear that we should not be enslaved by not just physical shackles, and we help, should help people get out of physical bondage and physical slavery, but also spiritual shackles. Isaiah 58 talks about this, that we should be loosed from the bonds of wickedness, that we should help people in that. And Jesus came to break the shackles of sin. He is the one who breaks the chains of lying, deceit, stealing, cheating, selfishness. And he forgives us in our shame and in our guilt. So we came not only to those who are materially poor, but also those who are poor in spirit. And he came to establish a people and to create a people that walk beside and along people who are struggling and want free. Jesus' people are people who help people recover their sight. They walk alongside the doubters, those who are in deep depression, reminding them that Jesus is near and that in him was life and that the light of all mankind shone through Jesus Christ and the light of darkness and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is part of Jesus' message. He ends this with saying that there will be the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this is an analogy here for the Jubilee year, or the year of Jubilee. The Jubilee is an analogy for God's people, uh, for basically the dawn of God's new age, a time for when everything that was kind of wrong will be made right. It was supposed to be a picture of total forgiveness and salvation for God's people, a time of freedom and a time of rest. A real vision for God's basically redemptive work in the world when God returns to restore all things to the order that he would have it. The Hebrew word for jubilee is this kind of a word for this ram's horn. And so this big horn was supposed to blow and this big celebration was supposed to happen on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the day that God's people were freed from captivity in Egypt. And so they were walking out of Egypt after God had freed them through the blood of the lamb and so they were going to celebrate this and this celebration was an announcement of their freedom that they were no longer slaves that they're no longer slaves to the egyptians that they were no longer going to be slaves to their gods and the, the sin that entangled them in that way and so god what he did is established what would be this year of jubilee the year of jubilee happened on the 49th or kind of the 50th year so seven times seven it's kind of this reminder of creation and recreation and celebration. And so God, what he did is when he brought everybody out of uh, captivity, he gave them a land. And when he gave them a land, what he did with all the people is he kind of divvied out the land as best as we can tell, like kind of equally as we can tell. So all these people had land, which is very important for people who are going to survive and live off the land, for them to live in a society that was fair and right, that everybody would kind of be given their, their land and they would be able to take care of one another and 
help and even transact with one another and so forth. And so God divvies out this land, and yet through the years, God expects some people um, to probably lose their land, to lose their wealth through different business transactions, through different mistakes, through different things that they do. He anticipated them making decisions that would get them into debt in which they would struggle. And that poverty would eventually take place even among his own people. And so what he did is, um, or what people could do then as they got in debt, as they sold land, um, they could then kind of lease themselves out. And they became bond servants. And so if you owed somebody money, if you didn't have money, what you did is you worked for them and you were required to work for them for a period of time until you could pay back everything that you had. And so you had this kind of system. It was kind of the best system they had at the time. Um, where people would try to pay back their debts by working it all out, and you were basically a servant um, or a slave or a bond servant in this way. The year of Jubilee was a year where they were to cancel all their debts and that they were to restore all the lands to the family who originally owned them. In Leviticus 25, Israel was told that every 50 years, families were to be given a second chance as their land was returned to them. So if you had lost your land, if you had lost your wealth, if you had lost kind of your place in society, what happened is that every 50 years that was restored and you were given a second chance. So for the poor, Jubilee was good news because it was a legal mechanism that literally reduced the gap between the rich and the poor. That God did not want his people to have this huge gap where the rich had so much and the poor had so little and it became very unbalanced. That's in the Bible. Did you know that? That's there. For all of God's people, it meant two things. That you, is to remind them of this. That you were once slaves yourself. So not to use your, your freedom to indefinitely enslave people and grow cold to the poverty of others. It was supposed to keep their hearts in the right place, to keep their society in check. And to keep them careful not to look at the poverty of others and just go, oh, they deserve that. Second is that it reminded the people that their land and their wealth did not belong to them. Hear me here. I'm not saying it belongs to the government. But I'm saying God is reminding them that their land did not belong to them, but it belongs to God. And that they belong to God. And he reminds them that they have their land that they have their wealth because God had given it to them and that they were only and always supposed to use it to honor him. The year of Jubilee was supposed to be about that. And by analogy, it was a picture of God's sovereignty over all of creation and a coming era of total forgiveness and salvation to all who belong to him. That was supposed to happen every 49 to 50 years among the people of God. What is interesting about this, if you study this, it never happened. Not once did the people of God trust God enough to do what God told him to do here. So Jesus gives this big vision here of how God's people are to treat the poor, care for them, like how, how radical he is, how radical God is in all of that. 
and how God has come for all of these people. And then he ends his sermon here, and he tells them that the messenger that who's going to bring this good news to the poor, the oppressed, so forth, and is bringing the vision of the Jubilee, and is going to establish the people. He's saying he is in front of them today, that there is a new people that are being created today, that today scripture is being fulfilled. And so Jesus, right in front of all the people that he grew up with, all the people who watched him as a kid, he is proclaiming that he is the person who is creating a new people and starting a new era among God's people. And he's hoping, right, <laughs> he's assuming that they are going to respond to this message. He says, by your hearing, this has happened. By you listening to this, this is happening right now. And so he's giving them an opportunity to respond to what he is saying. And I want you to see just how they respond here, which is just kind of interesting, because I think it's kind of different than how we would respond, hearing all this message and understanding kind of the background of what's going on here in the Old Testament. In verse 22 Here's how the people who are listening to him respond. They all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this Joseph's son? Now, there are two parts to this reaction. The first part is positive. They hear Jesus' exposition of Isaiah 58 and 61, and they're impressed. Now, they can be impressed for a couple different reasons here. The commentators don't really know because we're not really told. They could be impressed because Jesus maybe rhetorically was really good. Jesus maybe could turn a word here. And so Jesus is getting up. He's teaching on these texts. He's giving them a vision for Jubilee. And they might just be like, like whatever Jesus said, they're just impressed by it. On the other hand, these people are from Nazareth. If you remember what was said about Jesus being from Nazareth, it's probably safe to assume that people from Nazareth were not very wealthy. They were not very well off. They were not very even well liked. And they were looked down upon. We remember Nathaniel saying when he hears about Jesus, he's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? And so these people might be hearing this message, message and going, yeah, this is a good message. Like, oh, we need things to be restored. We are the poor. We are the broken. We are the oppressed. We're under Roman rule right now. We need somebody to come along and lead us out of this. And so they probably maybe even like that message. But the second way they respond is much more skeptical as they question Jesus. Because they question Jesus in this way. They say, hey, wait a second. This is Joseph's son, and he is proclaiming to be the person who is going to come and to establish a new people for God's good and his, for his glory. And they're, just, they're, they're trying to discern here, can they trust this man who they saw grow up as a little boy, who they know is a human being, be the messenger from God who is going to lead them? Can he be the anointed one? Is he the one who comes to save? Is he the one who comes to establish jubilee? Is he the one who is sovereign over their lives? Is he the one that they should give all of their land and their wealth to? Is he the one he should trust with, they should trust and all of that? Is he the one who really will forgive? Is he the one who will really heal? Is he the one who will really bring freedom? And Jesus is looking at these people at this time, and he's challenging them. Will you come and follow me? Will you believe me? Will you be my people? As they sit on that question, I want us as a church 
to think about this. Is who did Jesus envision us to be? Who did he envision us to be? Like what did he envision his church to be? And the answer I think is pretty simple. It's to be a full gospel people. It's to be people who believe that Jesus is the anointed one. That he is God in the flesh who bestows the spirit of God upon his believers so that they can walk in light. So that they can walk in freedom. So that they can walk in the way, the truth, and the life. And he is also the God who cares about the poor, the blind, the oppressed, and the captive. He envisioned his church to be people who truly care about them. People who are generous, who are sacrificial, who are the most freedom-loving people on the face of the planet. And so in some ways I want to encourage us this morning, I want to encourage us in some of the things that we do and that we give to and what we're about. So I, I think about people like the Breckmachers. I think about uh, Joanne's Pantry and the work that is done there and how we give to that. I, I think about the way that we try to support places like in Hannah's house and how we have people involved in that ministry. There are still 4.5 million sex slaves in the world and people being trafficked at this moment. Some of them right here in the Akron and Canton area. And so I think we're obligated to support people, places, ministries that help bring them out. Many of you remember Vicki Noyce. She used to sit right here next to Wayne half the time because Wayne used to bring Vicki Noyce. Vicki Noyce was physically blind. She got to come and hear the gospel and know that God was going to heal her someday. More than that, people in our church helped serve her, care for her, love her. We support places like Kogo Ministries that are trying to strengthen churches and plant churches so that people can hear the gospel and be free from their wickedness, their sin, walk out of darkness. Our Sunday ser morning services, this is part of what we do because we believe that Jesus can show up in people's lives and change their hearts and their minds and they can walk in freedom and truth. Our growth groups, it's a very real way to walk beside people who are doubting, who are depressed, who are, are being beaten down by the darkness of this world and the questions that we have and wondering, can people really be my friend? Can they deal with the messiness that I have in my life? All of those are great and wonderful things. But I also need to kind of poke the bear a little bit because that's what Jesus does here. And I believe one of my jobs as a pastor is actually to kind of make us feel the text a little bit. And how like difficult some of this is sometimes to swallow. And how much work sometimes we have to do. And you know, I don't know where any of you are at in some of these things. But these are just two things that I, I think about that seem to be fairly clear when uh, people like us are polled. Is that we give on average... Evangelicals, and what I mean by that, and I would say we mostly are evangelicals here in this room because it's, it's, we believe Christ is the only way. We believe in the authority of scriptures. Like we are biblically serious in this congregation. We believe that we should evangelize people who don't know Jesus Christ. We believe that we are morally responsible to live out his teachings. That's what I mean by that. The world means a bunch of different things by that, but that's what I mean by that. But from what we can tell, we give a, a, a great deal, or we, don't, we give a measly, I should say, 2.5% to charity. Right? You see how radical Jesus is with the year of Jubilee, how radical he is with wanting to help the poor, the blind, the oppressed. And we give probably about as much to help the poor 
the blind, the oppressed, the captive, as we spend on our pets. Which, by the way, is, so you can walk out of here self-righteous, got to help you here, right? Which is about 1% more than other people give. But it just, it just hardly feels like the generosity Jesus calls us to. Right, right now, there are 26.4 million refugees in the world. 26.4 million refugees in the world. These are people who are literally either trying to be captured or fleeing oppression. And from the latest data that we have from people who claim to be Christ followers, biblically serious, morally responsible, and want to evangelize the world, as individuals, we are the least likely to respond in a positive way to taking in refugees right now. Now, institutionally, we're doing pretty good. Our colleges, some of our ethics boards, we're writing uh, administrations, and we have in the past saying, yes, we have a moral obligation to refugees, even if they become our neighbors. Individually, in our pews and in our churches, Christians are responding to, I don't want them near my homes. That should be convicting. So these people are questioning whether Jesus is the way, whether he's the spirit-filled Messiah, and he's going to teach out the Old Testament again. He said to them, doubtless, you quote me this proverb here, he's going to kind of, he's just messing with them here. He says, physician, he's actually kind of reading their minds here. He says, physician, heal yourself. And so what he's, he's asking, what he's telling them is, these, there's, what he's saying is, there's a people in their crowd, they want Jesus basically to perform a cheap trick because he healed people back in Capernaum. And so he said, what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And so Jesus knows that he's going to anticipate this question. Well, prove yourself, Jesus. And so instead of actually doing kind of this cheap trick, here's what he says. He's going to teach out the Old Testament again. He said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only Zephyrthas in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill which their town was built so that they could throw him down a cliff. They're angry. Just a little bit at what Jesus had to say. Here. So Jesus gives this lesson out of the Old Testament, and basically what he tells them is he reminds them of the two prophets here, of Elijah and Elisha, and how these prophets of God, they were sent to people who weren't the people of God. Elijah was sent to this widow who didn't belong to the people of God, and Elijah was sent to Naaman, the Syrian, who did not belong to the people of God. And what Jesus is saying here is that 
I am going to go to people who respond to me in faith, even if you won't. And so the lesson is kind of twofold here, and it's relatively simple. He tells the Nazarenes, who are, allow- who are allowing themselves to become worse than Syrians and Phoenicians, that if they don't respond positively to him, if you re- re- reject me, I'll just go to other people, is what Jesus is telling them. That's why they're so angry. As you say, you're, you're getting worse than like people who don't know God at all. And so here's what happens. Verse 30. Passing through their midst, he went away. Now picture this. Jesus is back, he's got his back basically to the cliff, like his back against the wall. And they're really upset at Jesus. They're, they're ready to kill him. They're contemplating, like, what does his teaching even mean? And I, I don't know if you're doing that right now, because I think about the year of Jubilee, and I have no idea what that actually means to us, like, as a democratic republic. Um, we are not a theocracy, any of that. But what it does, I think, tell me is that we are socially responsible to make sure that we care for the poor, the oppressed, the blind, and so forth. The implications, we have to try to figure out. I don't know. I know one of the things we have to do is we actually have to make sure that we are doing things to do it. Not always just arguing over how to do it or the implications. Like, we actually have to do it. We have to make sure that we continue to care about those people, that we don't lose ministries or lose sight of ministries that help, that draw our heart close to people who are hurting, both physically and hurting for God. But I imagine this crowd here, and they're just arguing. They like lose sight of Jesus altogether. <laughs> and he is able to just walk out and they don't even know it. That's why I, I sometimes sit around and complicate, like, like it bothers me. Like I wonder, how would we react if Jesus showed up in our congregation? I wonder could Jesus just walk right out and us not even know it? Because we've lost sight or we lose sight potentially of the full gospel. Of becoming a people who love the poor, who want to free the captive, help the blind see. And walk along those who feel like they're being or are physically or spiritually depressed. And my challenge for us this morning is just simple. It's to cultivate the kind of life and heart that doesn't lose sight of that. That doesn't just come to this place. so that we can just feel good about ourselves as we go. That's a good thing. Like God loves you. <laughs> you're free. You're forgiven. You can walk out of here in that. But as we walk out, we must try to bring in those who are hurting, those who are lost, 
those who need healing. Because that's the kind of person God has called you to be, and that's the kind of people Jesus set out to create. So let's pray that we are becoming those types of people. Father, we come to you this morning. We give you praise and thanks for your son, Jesus Christ. We were once all lost. We were once all captive. We were once all slaves. And you have freed us. We were once all poor in spirit. And you have given us life. We were able to come on a Sunday morning. We're able to stand up here and praise. We're able to raise our hands high. We're able to jump up and down, scream, sing, whatever it might be, Father, because you have freed us in your spirit to love and to praise you, to no longer carry the shame and guilt around that weighs us down in this life, to no longer be bound by sin, selfishness, greed, but to be free from that. And we give you praise and thanks for that. I pray, Father, at this time, that you help us to remember that you have given us our freedom so that we could help others to be free. You've brought us out of spiritual poverty and some of us even out of material poverty, Father, through people in the church and, and pouring into us and teaching us how to live lives of godliness and goodness, how to save, how to get out of debt. Help us to care, love, and think about the poor. I thank you for the ways that so many people have taught me to do this in this congregation, for those who serve in different places, who have helped even individuals like Vicki. We pray that we would not be a church that Jesus can easily walk out of, but that we would be a people in a place where he is truly worshipped, where he is truly followed. We pray that our heartbeat would be for what his heart beat for, Father. And as I think about Jesus walking away from those people, I am reminded, Father, that he walks out of that crowd all of those who are rejecting him in that moment. And he is walking to the cross. He is walking to show that although he may have even, that he may be rejected by men and that we may reject him, but at the cross we are given another chance. At the cross, we are reminded that he will raise from the dead. At the cross, we were reminded that a jubilee is coming. There's total forgiveness. The resurrection and believing that is the power to live it out, not to store our treasures in heaven. Or not to store our treasures in earth, Father, but up in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy. So let us be rich in you. 
as we come to you this morning and a church that follows you as you are. In Christ's name, amen.